welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is, well, at least for this episode, it's still a Band of Brothers podcast. Uh, this is episode number 10, entitled Point. And uh, yes, this is our last episode of the Band of Brothers portion of our podcast. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, I'm Tim, and joining me as always is Tom. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Good. I was disappointed to learn today when I checked my podcast points that I do not have the required points to to muster out of dispatches from the front. I still need some continued service. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're gonna keep you here. Uh, the paper cut that you tried to claim last episode that was not approved. Uh, so you're not getting points for that injury. No, no, no podcast purple heart for me. No, no, no. Not not happening at all. I tripped over my laptop's power cord. I think I've got a contusion in my knee. That that that's going to be my next submission. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's gonna. We're gonna have to open an investigation on that one and see what kind of evidence we have. <laughs> uh, were there even any witnesses? I, I, you can take my baby's babbles as <laughs> proof positive. They are whatever I need them to be when translated to English. <laughs> I don't think she's a uh, a viable witness in, in your case, but yeah, yeah. Well, yes, folks. So this is uh, this is uh, again our last episode for the Band of Brothers portion of our podcast. We're covering points, which is a really a great wrap up to. The Band of Brothers series. There isn't a whole lot in terms of gritty warfighting action to it, but there's some really interesting moments that occur in this, and I think it shows. It doesn't show a lot in terms of the challenges of an occupying force, but within the hour or so of the episode, it does show some of that stuff, it, at least in terms of some of their initial challenges and what they were dealing with while they were there, um, along with a bunch of other activities. They actually crammed a lot into the episode. So uh, just to cover some of the, uh, the the metadata, if you will, for this, of course, Stephen Ambrose is given his uh, writing credit since this was based on his book. The two other writers we had for the episode were Eric Genderson and Eric Bork. Uh, both of them are producers on the series and have written prior episodes. Our director here is Michael Solomon, uh, who had previously directed the episode Carentan. So uh, he also had some, some good experience here. And there's actually a lot of similarity, at least in terms of the kind of the pacing and, and the big picture stuff between this episode and what we saw in Carentan, if you remember some of that. So, uh, Tom, can you talk to us a bit about what we saw in this episode? I can. This is bittersweet because this is my last time doing a plot summary for these episodes. But it's July 1945 when we take over. And just for, for reference, the D-Day, as you know, is June six of 44 so this this marks the the 13th consecutive month they've been at it that they be an easy company so the easy company receives orders to take hitler's eagle's nest in the bavarian alps which they in fact take with very little resistance they receive orders to occupy in place when word arrives of the official surrender of the german army otherwise known as 
Victory VE Day or Victory Europe Day. The men enjoy some R&R at the Eagle's Nest in Berchtesgaden, and they're then redeployed into the Austrian resort town of Zellamsee. Through this occupation, Major Winters processes the former formal surrender of various German forces while also administering joint security operations with other German with former German soldiers. While in Austria, the men drill for potential redeployment to the Pacific Theater while they each examine their discharge points, which are awarded based on time spent in combat, medals awarded, and injuries suffered. Several incidents in the occupation lead to senseless deaths and injuries. Private Genovic is killed in a road accident and Shifty Powers gets injured when his truck was hit by a drunken corporal after winning a lottery to be sent back home. After Sergeant Grant is shot in the head by a drunken private from another company, Captain Spears orders a manhunt for the perpetrator while he finds a German surgeon to, sh- to treat Sergeant Grant. Grant survives the incident, and the private takes a beating before being officially processed. A surrender ceremony is highlighted, with a German officer speaking to his men. The words of the officer resonate with Winters as he hears of similar hardships and camaraderie w- within the German ranks as the Allies experienced. The episode closes with a baseball game among the men of Easy. Winters tells the men that Japan has surrendered and the war is over. Damian Lewis, Major Winters, narrates an epilogue telling of the post-war lives of many of the men of Easy Company. Yeah, it's uh, quite a journey that we took with Easy in this uh, in, in this episode. Our cast members, we obviously saw really a lot of our uh, kind of the core members of Easy uh, that we've seen over the last few episodes. And uh, we, we saw a lot of interesting things happen here. The early on, kind of the, the most pointed moment here was this taking of Eagle's Nest, which was had a little bit of comedy in it. Uh, as we, we had folks from the 101st who were stuck on a road. And uh, just to give folks a little bit of a lay of the land here. So the Eagle's Nest is in basically the extreme southeastern corner of Germany. There's there's a little bit of a like a peninsula of Germany that juts out into uh, into the Alps. And just north of this is Salzburg, which is Austria. The town at the bottom of this particular mountain uh, in Germany is called Obersalzburg, which is literally translates to over Salzburg. Uh, it's a higher elevation than Salzburg, and you can actually see it from there. As you make your way up the mountain, there's a bit of a plateau there, and that's where this town called Berchtesgaden is. And then higher up, as you continue up to the very top of the mountain, is uh, where the eagle's nest is. And so Berchtesgaden has a when when the the Nazi regime kind of took over the area and and Hitler prior to the war had actually lived in Berchtesgaden uh for a period of time he he rented a rented a house there and um a lot of the well basically all of the residents the original residents of Berchtesgaden were kicked out uh, some were actually paid off if they were willing to leave, particularly early on in this. They were given, I guess, what was a reasonably fair market value for their property. 
those who resisted were either arrested and kicked out or eventually, you know, told they were given threats and they may or may not have received some measure of compensation, but nothing that was even anywhere close to fair market value for their property. A lot of the homes were demolished with much grander houses rebuilt, uh, which were largely for the uh, high-ranking members of the Nazi party. So you had kind of this alternate seat of power, um, or at least another alternate seat of power. I mean, really, we talked earlier about a lot of the rise of, of the Nazi regime coming out of Munich. Obviously, the political center of the administrative center of power in the Nazi regime was Berlin, since that's the capital of, of Germany. But you had this other location where there was a lot of power and a lot of brokering and meetings. I mean, Mussolini would come here to visit and all, all these other political and authoritative things happening there. Now, Hitler also had a home in Berchtesgaden. Uh, the Eagle's Nest was was not a residence for, for Hitler. This was basically just a meeting place. Interestingly enough, Hitler did not like heights. Yet this place was <laughs> at the very top of a mountain. Um, and having visited there just a few months ago, I mean, the views are absolutely breathtaking. They're just insane. And, and this wonderful higher altitude, clean air, and you just see everything all around you. And it's it's incredible. But he he did not live there. He he lived down in 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 Berchtesgaden. So, in the episode, we saw and we also had some of the dialogue that supported some of this. That the one hundred first was kind of stuck there on this road, and there was at some point some measure of German resistance that was holding out that wanted to set up. Uh, roadblocks, literally and figuratively, for the invading forces. Um, Tom, we were talking a little bit be before we started recording about some of this. Uh, you know, the the how they were trying to overcome some of these obstacles. This is like one of my favorite parts of the like the entire series because it so perfectly encapsulates like the army and the average private. Because you see this great scene where you've got this convoy. Everybody's kind of in good spirits, but they're stuck with all these boulders. And what are the privates doing but piling up grenades, like hand grenades, <laughs> on the rocks? And I had forgotten. It had, it's been a long time since I watched Points when I watched it again for the podcast. And so I'm, I'm thinking they're going to pull the grenade or the, one of the pins on one of the grenades and just let them go off daisy chain like that. Mm -hmm. But no, they one up it and they step back and fire a bazooka into the helmet full of grenades. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think about the soldier who like cared little enough to to like volunteer and give up his helmet to put all the grenades in. Like, no 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 no. <laughs> Take mine. Yeah. But uh it's it's there's a, a line you're talking about Berkta's Garden and the shift in residence there. Captain Nixon gives a great line because it's just this eerie scene where they're going through the town and there's nobody there. And he says, somebody questions why, and he says, this is the one town where you can't deny being a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really, it's interesting. I mean, the, the only 
people who they're finding around there at this point are essentially servants and the uh, uh, the innkeepers at the uh, the Berchtesgadenhof, which is the the hotel, the big hotel there, and very clearly very elegant hotel. It was there for VIPs uh, who were coming to visit, and the place is filled with. Uh, you know, silver and all the Nazi banners and all sorts of other stuff. So, you know, there there was a significant Nazi presence there. I mean, that was really what 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 underscored that whole thing. You were mentioning there's some controversy about who actually made it up to the uh, to Eagle's Nest first. Obviously, this is like the crown jewel. Of everybody knows it's it's Hitler's sort of uh, you know headquarters outside of Berlin, and okay, tell me we were talking about this a little bit before the recording, but talk about the the you know, the, the jockeying of stories between units. Yeah, so it, it's interesting when you look kind of look at the history books. There are different tellings of this, and it doesn't seem to really be anything definitive that says who truly reached the eagle's nest first. So to kind of give the lay of the land here, you had a number of units that were essentially competing for the honor. You had the 3rd Infantry uh, Division, and they were in, they had just taken Salzburg. So again, like I said, Salzburg is just north of this area. You can see Salzburg from here. It would not have been a long redeployment for them to to get over to Berchtesgaden and, and up to the Eagle's Nest. The 7th ID, uh, 7th Infantry Division was in the area. You had the 506, uh, which spearheaded by the 101st, so easy company, the, the folks who we've been focusing on here. And then the French 2nd Armored. And I believe they mentioned the French 2nd Armored in the episode, right? They do. That's that's where, what gives Colonel Sink the oomph he needs to tell Major Winters to get up the mountain. Yeah. So looking into the history books, it was very clear that really things in terms of higher command, particularly going up to, to Supreme Headquarters level to, to Schaefe, they were looking at the 101st and the French 2nd, the 101st was a little bit of, uh, uh, further along than the French 2nd Armored in this. And there was some debate in higher command of, well, geez, do we, do we hold the 101st back, let the French 2nd take it because, well, it's France. And, of course, they had been occupied by Germany. They kind of wanted to give this – there was some talk of giving this symbolic win to the French. But then on the other hand, you had the 101st, highly decorated – the Supreme Allied Commander was Eisenhower, who was an American. And kind of at this point, it was like, a, well, all right, let's let's just, you know, let's have the 101st take this. Interestingly enough, there is a debate in this because there are folks who claim that the 7th Infantry Division had actually gotten up there, gone through Berchtesgaden, went up to the Eagle's Nest and took it first. They claim, though, that they got up there, they looked around, there was no one there, they shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, let's go someplace else. <laughs> so they immediately turned around and followed what is in the record that they were to redeploy to occupy uh, Salzburg, which had just been 
taken by the 3rd Infantry Division. This has been refuted significantly by folks in the 101st, up to and including major winners, who basically said, look, we we probably would have seen them going up and down the mountain. And I'll tell you again, from having been there, there's one road up that mountain. There, there's no, there's not like a back way. So if, if the seventh was there as the 101st was going up, they would have seen the seventh coming back down. The 101st did run across these roadblocks, which again, the seventh would not have gotten through. Uh, You know, I I mean, those roadblocks were there. The 101st was dealing with them. So clearly, no one was there before them. And to like further underscore this, Winters does say outright, there's no evidence of anyone else in terms of Allied forces having been here because there was gold and silver and booze and it was all untouched. <laughs> and, you know, basically he knows these army guys that, hey, they would have been there and... and as has been the MO for the last several months, you take a town, you loot, and, and these guys have been looting, despite official policy. Not the virtuous 7th Infantry Division. Yeah. Not them. <laughs> <laughs> not that we're knocking the 7th ID. I, I, I don't actually know anyone in the 7th ID, but, you know, we don't want nasty grams or anything. I'll, t- I'll talk about, I'll give you some interesting, an interesting tidbit about the 7th when we get down to, uh, around to our military linguists lingo section. Okay. Um, but basically, I mean, to, to wrap this up, the, the 101st, it, like we saw in, uh, in the episode, was that soon after arriving, and, you know, they hung out there for, for a day or two, but then they were given orders to occupy in place once uh, the surrender of the German army came across. And Schaaf was then figuring out, okay, they all surrendered. Now what are we going to do? So everyone just stay put. So these guys got to stay and hang out in the Eagle's Nest in, in Berchtesgaden, which is not a bad place to stay. No, no. There, there are worse places to be quartered, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And particularly the views, uh, again, that they had from there. And, and it was uh, pretty evident that, that Winners had kind of taken up the Eagle's Nest as, as, his, uh, as his own personal office. <laughs> they really drive home in the episode the the weight of the moment for the soldiers. I mean, they're, yeah. it, it's one thing is they're going through Berchtesgaden and it's this eerie environment like we talked about. But when they finally make it up to Hitler's nest, I mean, a place where or Hitler's nest, he's <laughs> like a spider on top of the mountain. <laughs> when they make it up to Eagle's nest, I, the the gravity of the the situation I think is is apparent with all the soldiers. I mean it's it's like a jubilant moment because they're not having to fight their way in yeah. tooth and nail to take it. But I think everybody realizes the significance and um, they quite uh, quite frankly they don't know how really to react initially. I mean they winners is kind of walking around staring at stuff. They find a, a dead Nazi officer. Which I don't know if that was supposed to be anyone of any significance. I'm not sure if that was ever elaborated upon, but um, they're just sort of soaking it all in. I mean, it, you really feel like your your point of view is shared with them, where you're sort of uh, drinking in this moment. And uh, I particularly like winners. We talk about virtue and whatnot. 
Um, you're not supposed to steal in in combat environments. I mean, it happens, but uh, they, they, he walks over and starts to see some some uh, silver and and whatnot, and they start to go through these uh, these items, and he starts to grab his own set of forks and knives and spoons. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, I think I, I think about myself in that situation and. I think Spears went for the item that I would have gone for. He he goes up and snatches one of the Nazi flags off the wall and starts to ball it up and, and put it in his pack. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, best man at my wedding, his grandfather served in World War II out in the Pacific. And uh, one of the uh, sort of pieces that he brought back home, they had... Uh, they found a, a Japanese airplane that had crash-landed on their island. They came across it. Um, and he recovered a Japanese battle flag, so mm. one that the pilot took with him into battle and, and carried with him in the cockpit there. But he recovered it, and it still had... I mean, it was very apparent that it, it had not only been used, but it had been in, you know, kind of a violent accident. Mm. And we had this framed... He's got this... It's beautifully framed. We had it up in college in our dorm room, just... <laughs> like dead center. I don't know that we had anything else up on the walls except for this like <laughs> massive authentic Japanese battle flag. <laughs> but uh I so I think if I if I were in that situation I might have gotten a fork or a knife, but I definitely would have gone for one of those flags, I think. Maybe Hitler's his photo album which Spears was so pissed about losing <laughs> later in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going after if you're looting Hitler's or Hitler's nest. I, I want to rename it. That's I guess that's what my brain wants to do today. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean the the sheer amount of stuff, especially again in in Berchtesgaden, just had to have been incredible. And uh, I, I I love the moments kind of toward the end of their occupation time in Berchtesgaden, where uh, <laughs> Winters tells Nixon he says, "Hey, I got to show you something." <laughs> And uh, they they go down into uh, what, what was actually uh, Goring's house, and he had this like mind-blowingly incredible wine cellar with like I don't know what do you say like ten thousand bottles of stuff. Oh yeah, and it just I, I mean I I love wine so like this was envious. I'm looking at this <laughs> and I'm like wow this is just amazing, and and, and you you see Nixon just kind of. Uh, he has the same emotion on his face. I mean, he's just slack jawed and just looking up at the, these incredible racks of wine and, and just doesn't even know what to say. That's one of the single best scenes in the entire series. And it's one of those where with all the battles that he's had with, with his alcoholism and with everything that Dick Winters has tried, has gone through and endured with him, and and tried to help him. This is like the one moment where you're like, we'll put that all on pause because this is a special exception. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have at it. And Winters is like, take whatever you want and just let the guys divide up the rest. You know. Yeah. <laughs> when he comes down the stairs, it's just like perfect, like perfectly encapsulates him as a as a person and an officer. He's got like the aviator sunglasses on. Oh yeah. yeah. It's just you know total relax mode like what could you possibly show me that i would care about yeah <laughs> <laughs> and especially as the intel the intel guy what could you show me that i don't already know about 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after their period of time here in Berchtesgaden, uh, they do get themselves redeployed down to, uh, oh, where was this again? Uh, Zell MC, uh, which translates to Zell on the sea. Uh, it's a giant lake that's down there. Um, it's, it's in the Alps, so there's like ski resorts and mountains all around them. And this beautiful alpine lake which is where we see winners in the beginning and then again toward the end uh, of, of the of the episode swimming in. And Nixon also decides to take a dunk himself toward the end. <laughs> so They're looking for a red-headed Eskimo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so their time down here, well, they do manage to clearly extend their R&R some there is some seriousness to this as there's a, there's a lot of indication that they could be redeployed to the Pacific theater. There's that great scene where they're all, it it's juxtaposed because I think it cuts away from a pretty jubilant moment and it cuts over to the men sitting in a theater, watching a newsreel from the Pacific talking about Okinawa mm-hmm. and just the brutal fighting that's going on there. And you hear the, I mean, it's one thing that they're, watching the images of this just brutal, brutal battle, yeah. but they're hearing the announcer pull no real punches and talking about how bloody things were. Yeah. And these are guys that are on the heels of just a constant state of combat mm-hmm. in some really, really tough fighting from Normandy onward. And and in the case of the Tacoa men, I mean, they've been together and at this for three years plus and now you've got the prospect of going to the other side of the the world um, and putting your life on the line again. Yeah. And that's that's tough to fathom. And this is where they really start talking about their discharge points. Um, mm-hmm. Tom, what, what can you tell us about that whole system? So this is a system that doesn't exist today. It's It's gone the way of the dodo. Uh, Today, in the all-volunteer army, and, and I should say, this is a relic of the draft army, where you're you're brought in uh, to, to involuntarily serve. I should say that, that folks, regardless of how you, you came in, these service points dictate your service. Mm-hmm. So it took uh, 85 points to be able to be discharged. And you hear the men, there's, there's some exposition in the episode that explains decently how this works because they're they're all kind of totaling up their points and discussing ways that you can get points to to get toward that 85 but you can actually look online it's fascinating to look up old discharge certificates and you see uh folks with with really valorous service records that are just broken down and and made into simple mathematical equation <laughs> and it's it's amazing to step back and think you know that hey that um that five points for your your purple heart i mean that's that's what the army is placed that's the value the army has placed it on yeah. but if you look at uh one of the the score rubrics on the for these discharge points each month in service counts as one point a month in service overseas counts as one point each combat award so each medal, battle participation star is five points. So when you, you hear 
folks like Nixon talking about, or, or winners and Nixon talking about, hey, he's only got the one purple heart. Like, he only got wounded in combat once, and that's only going to net him five points. That's what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, hey, it's a damn shame that you you take an injury for your country like that and recover and come back to service, and all you're getting is uh, an incremental slide towards being discharged. Yep. You get... Um, you get some points for having dependent children under 18. So that the idea that, um, you know, the, to your kids. Yeah. You, you don't want to orphan kids back home. And that's really it. There's not really too many other ways to get points. Uh, so you really have to not only serve, but you've got to, to serve in some combat and, uh, really put your life on the line to stack points quickly. And that's why you see a lot of these guys, uh, Shifty Powers is a great example, a guy that had been with the unit for a long time, but never, by the grace of God, managed to never get hurt. And he doesn't have enough points. This is a guy that's been with the unit for forever. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, the, the the recognition of the inherent unfairness of the system, I think everybody recognizes it. And so they do that lottery with heavy air quotes to, to send one man home. <laughs> How, there's how only one name in that. Were in that helmet. <laughs> there's only one piece of paper in that helmet. <laughs> you know, and so it's. I think everybody on the ground realizes it, it. This is turned from something that's aspirational, like "Hey, one day I could have enough points," to really demoralizing. "Hey, I I've done all these things, and I'm still only two thirds of the way there." Yeah. And it was. Uh... I mean, obviously, it occupied a lot of the narrative, I think, mostly in the second, uh, the second act of, of this episode. As the guys were talking about it, you had the lottery, which which wasn't a big thing in the episode. It was just kind of a flash in the pan when they when they did this. But there was that little bit of lead up to it, which I think once the lottery occurs and you realize that they in fact rigged this intentionally for shifty, <laughs> the discussion that they had with shifty just prior to this, like all makes sense, you know? Yeah. Um, that the guys really wanted to to take care of him because of his service and everyone respected him and, and he was otherwise a great guy. And unfortunately, you know, he got injured uh, as he was on his way out of, uh, out of Germany, mm-hmm. but he did apparently survive that and, and go on to, to have an otherwise good life. Yeah. And it's worth, maybe it, it's a little valuable to put it into context with what it looks like today. So today, if you were to walk in and enlist in the army as a private or, or even come in at, well, officers are a little bit different, but say you come in as a private um, you're on a contract. There's no point system. Uh, you're you're signing up for a period of time, three, four years, whatever the case may be, and you you get what's called an expiration term of service or an ETS date generated, and that's your date. If you deploy five times within those three years, if you deploy no times, uh, if you get 17 combat medals and uh, or zero, <laughs> that the time is the time. Right. Now there are there are ways to to get out early, um, you know, medical reasons or uh, you know a few others. But by and large, it's time based. So it's like flipping over one of those little hourglasses 
and watching the sand run out. And so you could be, your unit could be on the verge of deploying to Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria. If your ETS date is coming up, unless you voluntarily choose to extend mm -hmm. and re-enlist and sign a new contract, you're out. Like, And there's no, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's business. And, and I think it's, it's treated that way. And you get a lot of soldiers that do re-up and sign new contracts mm -hmm. because of situations like that. Similarly, there's always a calculus of folks that are coming up for ETS in combat zones. We had several uh, whose dates came up, and, and if they hadn't re-enlisted, they would have gotten to go back home. So you're talking you know, 12, 15-month deployment. Somebody who comes up for ETS six months in can theoretically get sent home. And you get tons of soldiers. The internet, I, you do a single Google image search of a re-enlistment ceremony in a combat zone and it, prepare to be inspired. Because sure. there, there will be folks... There'll be folks today, as we sit here recording this, that will choose to re-enlist, sign a new contract in a combat zone, knowing that they're going to have to serve the rest of their time there uh, and, and take whatever risks are inherent with that mm -hmm. and continue going through. So it's very different today than it is then. And the other side of it that I would say is these guys with Easy Company, there, there was no relief. Uh, so there wasn't any, hey, we're going to rotate back and eight, the 82nd Airborne is going to take our place. Right. This was all hands on deck. I mean, the entire United States Army, all active divisions that were non-training divisions were engaged in combat mm -hmm. somewhere or, or in some operations. And today, it's it's not the same. I mean, the scope of our operations are just different. And your unit might be deployed today and, and you... And, and, I, Third ID is a great example because I, I spent five of my years on active duty with Third ID, whose honor has been slight, only slightly questioned. <laughs> not, not like Seventh ID, but um, there was a time during Operation Iraqi Freedom, so from 2003 to 2010, Third ID was on a year-on-year-off schedule, so they weren't deployed persistently the entire seven years or so, eight years. For that period, but they would go for a year or 15 months, they would come back, have a reset period, some other unit would take their place, and then they would come back. That's not what these guys faced. And so when you think about mentally what they were going through, they're not, they might go, to, go home or go back to England for maybe a refit period. But this mm -hmm. isn't like they go home and get 12 months and <laughs> let's see what happens and then we'll go back. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a constant grind. So it's just a completely different psychological element to that. Yeah, it, it seems with essentially how active this theater was, and and then considering the fact that we had two major theaters of war, that really if you got any kind of a break, it was simply at the convenience of higher command that it was a, well, we don't really have anything for these guys to do for a week. So we're, we're, we're just going to, you know, pull them back somewhere, whether they got pulled back to England or uh, somewhere in France or Belgium and had the opportunity to, to hang out for a little bit, but it wasn't, yeah. wasn't really enough for them to get a good rest. I mean, that's uh, that, like you said, that, that, that perpetuation of it or that persistence of it, through the entire deployment period was a, a significant hardship on them, uh, both physically and mentally. 
Yeah, and you think about it, so this is going into to our military lingo a little bit again, but they talk about, and we'll get fully into it, but they talk about divisions, right? So the 101st Airborne Division is one of these. In the Army of 1943-1944, so at the end of 1943, a year plus prior to this episode, the Army's, the Army's strength was at about 70 divisions. Mm. And, um, you know, a division is a, a, a pretty significant uh, size unit. They're structured a little bit differently back then. But just to give, I don't even have to put a number on troops to, to give you the scale difference. Today's army consists of 18 divisions. And, and you think about how big the army is today or how seemingly big it is. I mean, sure. there's just the scale and the, the scale, the scale of the army and the scale of the army's involvement in operations is just staggeringly different than it is today. Um, and you know, this we've been at war here for, what, 18 years mm-hmm. almost? And I, still, I, I don't know that we'll ever reach, I hope we never reach the size that we did back then. And so that's the, you've got all, the, all, all those personnel, all those units involved, and they're still not able to, to run a rotational basis truly like we have today. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff that uh, you kind of alluded to in your summary of some of the things that were going on when these guys were in Austria. They were, while they were technically keeping themselves uh, in some kind of a training regimen and, and, and readiness for redeployment, to the Pacific, there was, there did seem to be a lot of downtime. It was a little more relaxed. They were not technically in a combat zone, um, but they were still doing, they still had a, a physical security presence. There were checkpoints on roads and that kind of stuff that they were dealing with. I mean, they were an occupying force. And, uh, but there was a lot of, again, there was a lot of downtime for these guys. There was a fair amount of drinking. We saw a lot of drinking. <laughs> And most of the incidents that occurred that they portrayed here had some kind of relationship to alcohol. So you had car accidents. You had, uh, unfortunately, we we had the uh, uh, the shooting of Grant, which occurred, and that was just a that was one of those things that like you see it happen, you see the whole thing unfold, and then you hold your breath. As as Grant is approaching this soldier and questioning him on what's going on, and the soldier is clearly, it seemed to be partly fueled by alcohol, but there was also something else going on in his head. Pretty obviously, yeah. you know, he's looking for 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 gas, and he ends up shooting a German, and all this stuff goes on and you know grant's saying hey i i i need you to come here and put that weapon down and he ends up getting shot so obviously that incident itself was was pretty tragic but then we saw suddenly spears came into this timeline and we really saw spears doing an awful lot of, i mean he was highly motivated <laughs> to resolve the situation, not only to make sure that Grant was cared for, but also to find the soldier who did this and 
in some way, shape, or form, uh, get this soldier taken care of and not in a good way. Yeah, I thought that it was it was a really a powerful episode for Spears' character. He goes from this sort of death incarnate character we've talked about again and again to his first reaction in in this entire situation is getting care for Grant. Yeah. Uh, they, they go to the army surgeon and, and get the bad news there. The surgeon just sort of throws up his hands. And then immediately, without any pause, they his reaction is like, well, we're going to find a brain surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's exactly what they do. I you know, they track down a German and and drag him out, drag him out of his house to to help care for him. I thought that was just phenomenal. And then he gets around to f- flipping the switch and conducting the manhunt. And he comes damn close to to stepping a line that he would never be able to step back across. I mean, he pulls his 1911 on that soldier. And I don't I was going to ask you this cuz I don't know the answer since the soldier was so bloodied up by the time we actually see him. Was that the same soldier? Did they get the right guy? I think they did, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think they, they did get the right guy. And this also made for what I thought was a real interesting arc for Spears, considering where, you know, when we first saw Spears, he had this this legend attached to him of being a badass and killing a bunch of POWs in in, in cold blood and all these other things. And then we see him in this moment now that he's actually surrounded by other American soldiers and they could see him, you know, probably a lot of them, or at least a handful of them who knew of this legend of, of Spears from earlier on are like, Oh yeah, he's just going to kill him. <laughs> he's going to off him. And I think a number of these guys were probably in favor of it. Cause they were just beating the shit out of this guy you know, meeting out some, some unofficial justice, right, wrong, or indifferent. And Spears then, I, I think, realized that, one, it was the wrong thing to do. Also considering that Spears, there was this discussion between Spears and Winters elsewhere in the episode where Spears tells the major, he says, yeah, I, I've thought about what I'm going to do and I decided I'm going to stay. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens to these guys, they're going to need some consistency in their leadership. And, you know, I, I want to hang out and, and stay with them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously that's that's not just a momentary thought that he had. So it's something that he had been thinking about for a while, and he probably realized that if he did this, you know, at worst, he would have gotten court-martialed, and he wouldn't have that opportunity. And at best, it still would have changed the relationship and the dynamic that he had with the guys who witnessed this. I absolutely agree. I I think he... You could see it in his in his actions is he the pistol is literally shaking in his hand as he's mulling this over and i go back to his his statement in that church when he's talking to to now lieutenant lipton he's like there's value in them thinking you're the most badass person on the earth right 
it's a different story to all of a sudden live that kind of infamy out in front of the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about that line getting crossed, regardless, you're absolutely right. Worst case scenario, he gets court-martialed and faces those consequences. But I think even more than that, he steps that line with the soldiers and what does that do? I mean, you know, that maybe they go to war and that it affects their perception of him, but for now they're an occupying force in a period of peace. I mean, what does that do to the good order and discipline of the soldiers going forward? They see him step that sort of ultimate line. What happens when he needs to enforce basic rules in the future? Yeah. Um, and it, uh, just on an existential level, you can think about that on a basic practical level. You you get you could get a soldier that would say, you know, like, fuck you, Spears. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I saw you murder a guy. Like, you want me to go tell the commander about that little ditty? Yeah, exactly. That little, that little ditty? Yeah. So it creates all sorts of problems. <clears throat> but it's just, yeah, it was an incredibly powerful scene. It's it's one thing to have that kind of legend surrounding you. It's another thing to actually have, you know, a dozen witnesses. <laughs> yeah. That's why he got rid of all the witnesses at the earlier age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we also have this brief little side story of um who was there? Uh Liebgott, I think, and a couple of other mm-hmm. guys ended up finding out that there was apparently a Nazi officer living in a small farm somewhere near where they were, and they went out and went after him. Liebgott believed he was a some official or a guard from a concentration yep. camp and is just on a like a find-and-kill mission. Yep. I think it's the only way to put it. Uh, he wasn't interested in bringing this guy into justice. No. No, not at all. And they, they, they broke into the into this this little farmhouse and found the found a Nazi uniform. And uh, Liebgott had done some measure of interrogation uh, under obvious duress of this officer, and he claimed that the officer admitted to something. They never actually said exactly what. And uh, and eventually he ended up. Uh, well, he he tried shooting the officer, chased him out of the house, and somebody, I actually don't remember who, ended up shooting him. Yeah, well, Webster was the other soldier. Yes. Webster's yeah, the Webster one. Was there. <sighs> Refresh my memory. Could Webster speak German? Was he another one of the soldiers that could speak and understand yes. German? Okay. Yes. And it's interesting because he never really pushes back and says he didn't say that. I, it's unclear how much Webster could hear because he goes outside of the hut and just smokes a cigarette nervously yeah. as all this happens. Well, I, I think it was pretty clear that, you know, Liebgott, Liebgott had this very clear intent in his head and in his heart. And this is what he was going to do. And it probably didn't matter no. what the circumstances actually were or what this guy said, uh, Liebgott was going to mete out his form of justice. And yeah. there was really no dissuading him from it. I think you're you're right on the money, and I think that's exactly why Webster just steps outside. Yeah, He knows there's no talking to him. It's not worth this fight. It's not worth him getting shot. 
because who's going to report? I mean, you know, this is sort of the Wild West in a way. The fact that they've got no supervision and, and three soldiers can just wander off into the countryside to find a German speaks volumes about the, the lack of command and control in general. And I think Webster knows full well that if if he gets shot out there, all it would take would be Liebgod killing the German and saying, well, we got a, we confronted this officer and, and unfortunately we got into a firefight. He resisted and poor Webster got killed in the crossfire. And that I think Webster sizes that up and says, nah, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's really what a lot of it boils down to. And, you know, a, a lot of these guys obviously carried this measure of, of animosity, but certainly it was something that was important to Liebgott. Uh, with him being Jewish and, and witnessing what he did um, at the concentration camp that they encountered earlier. And just, you know, he, he didn't want to see someone escape some measure of justice. So what else do we have here? We had the interesting encounter with Captain Sobel, who, who, yeah, who came that's... back around. We didn't expect to see him again. That's right. This is one of the the most satisfying moments. It's so quick. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. But it's one of the most satisfying moments in all ten episodes. He drives up, Sobel does, and he attempts to just go right by or walk right by Major Winters, who's sitting in his Jeep. Mm-hmm. Major Winters does not get up. No, no. <laughs> doesn't stand up but he calls him back over of course he's the major he's not going to stand up no why as, as <laughs> but but as, but winner saluted him he did and wh- what does he tell him <laughs> uh you, you, we we salute the rank not the man and that's exactly what uh he was told earlier i, I don't know if it was him or, or if that was just a line that sobel used again and again but that's what Sobel said all the way back at Tekoa. Oh, did he really? Or it was either oh, Tekoa or that. in England before they jumped into Normandy. Oh, I forgot that he used his own line against them. Yep. So it's just sweet, sweet justice as he comes back. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. That's yeah. fantastic. And that's the last you see. It's just this, you know, thirty-second scene, but it's so priceless. Yeah. Yeah. We touched on some of the military lingo. We touched on discharge points. We we talked a little bit about some of the divisions in the context of the structure of the army and, and getting out and whatnot. One of the other military military lingo points that I wanted to go over, not so much general lingo, but Major Winters attempts to transfer over into the 13th Airborne. He tells Nix that if... They're going to have to go to Japan mm. or to the Pacific to fight. 13th Airborne is slated to go immediately, and, and he just wants to get it over with. Yep. And, of course, Nix is like, all right, well, I'm going to go with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the 13th Airborne is a good example. This is a unit that no longer exists today. It's inactive. This was an airborne division uh, that was active and fought in World War II and was based out of... Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is where present day the 82nd Airborne and Special Operations Command are are headquartered. I bring this up because we talked earlier that 
at the time of World War II, 1943, 1944, you saw the height of the, the Army's size. You're talking just dozens upon dozens of divisions. That wasn't practicable to keep the Army that size post-war and into peacetime. Mm -hmm. A, it's a huge expense. You're, you're not going to be able to man that size army unless you just keep the draft going and keep folks in right. even in peacetime. So it really doesn't make sense. And so for the 13th Airborne specifically, it was inactivated in February of 1946. So just a few months after the war totally ended. They never actually uh, deployed or saw any combat in the Pacific. But that happened to a lot of divisions. So you will go around the country today and you'll see highways dedicated or bridges dedicated or buildings dedicated to divisions that either have been inactivated and no longer exist or they've transitioned to some other function. A lot of National Guard units that saw a lot of action in World War II are just that. I, you, you know, They might get activated occasionally, but uh, there are a lot of divisions, patches that you'll see on jackets and stuff uh, that just don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and the same goes for, uh, there were units that fought in Vietnam that are now inactivated. Doesn't mean that they can never be reactivated. And I promised you earlier in the episode a little bit about the 7th Infantry Division. This is a great example of a unit that has been reactivated in some former fashion. I, I like to think of this as like a zombie being like brought back up from the dead. <laughs> 7th ID fought uh, in, in World War II. It fought uh, in the Korean War. Uh, it, it Long history behind it. Today it does exist. It was inactivated for a, a period of time. Um, it was active from 1917 to 1921 and then it was inactive until 1940. From 1940 through 1971, the end of um, Vietnam, it was active, so about a 31-year period mm -hmm. there. And then it's been sporadically active and inactive since then. Today, 7th ID exists as a headquarters element, so it's about 250 people out at Joint, Bla Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State. Hmm. And 7th ID, the, the most recent iteration of it, and the reason that they have it, has more to do with uh, command control, military justice, than it does with any warfighting capability. 7th mm. uh, ID is not out there with soldiers on the ground in Syria, you know, training right. the Iraqi army or Syrian resistance. Yeah, I, specifically with 7th ID, the, the issue out at JBLM was that you had soldiers that belonged to the 2nd Infantry Division that were split between South Korea and Washington State at JBLM. And there was always a question of which general court-martial convening authority or which general had authority over these soldiers. And so 7th ID was stood back up in part as a headquarters element to help simplify that. So they have jurisdiction over a number of soldiers at JBLM for purposes of military justice. So it is uh, much smaller, obviously, but this is the army is always a revolving door. So we'll come back ten years from now, and we'll see <laughs> if Thirteenth Airborne is back in action in some former capacity. Right. I don't know. Uh, the other one is Four F. We this term has been thrown out a little bit. I don't know that it was used in points, but it's been thrown out here and there across the, the episodes. I think there was one episode where 
one of the soldiers mentioned somebody back home, like a buddy that got 4F'd. It was almost used as a verb and committed suicide because of it. Well, 4F, as a, it, it, you've probably also heard it in Captain America, in the, uh, the first Cap- Captain America movie, because Steve Rogers gets 4F'd, uh, I think, at the start. Yep. So it means, at a basic level, you're, you're medically not eligible to, to serve in the armed forces or in the mm-hmm. army. The term itself dates back to the Civil War. Back then, you know, you <laughs> the, the army the army was not concerned if you had like ADHD or if you had some like minor psychological issue or major psychological issue from <laughs> your life. As long as you could fire a weapon and, and just perform some basic tasks, you were all in, and we'll give you the uniform. Sure. But there were a, f- a few disqualifying ones, and one of the issues that 4F dates back to was the ability to tear off uh, the powder packets with your teeth, mm. and dental hygiene not being what it is today. <laughs> if you had no teeth. <laughs> there were some folks who might be missing a few, and so 4F uh, originally was designed uh, to, to reference like the lack of the forefront teeth. Oh, interesting. And the end of it. Therefore, the inability to, to tear the powder pack. Oh, off. so it's not now like it's become... Article Four F of some type of military code. It's a it's more of a slang or a lingo. Basically, huh. yeah. Now, now today, I don't know that it whether it correlates to any kind hmm. of you know regulation or whatever. But that's exactly what it meant back then, and it just became ubiquitous. Interesting. Since then, and then the last one, and this is so near and dear to my heart, Ranger pants. You see, <laughs> it's not said. It's never said in any of these episodes, but you see Major Winter is wearing a classic example of ranger panties, uh-huh. or what would be called ranger panties, at the beginning of the episode as he's swimming in Austria. Uh, <laughs> today, I, the, the term, again, is used to describe just short shorts yeah. uh, that, that you know soldiers use or whatever. Literally, what it relates to is the Ranger Regiment has its own PT uniform, and they wear their own short shorts, and they wear them with pride, uh, and so they call them Ranger panties. Yep. I mean, they almost look and like boxers. Div- they're like yeah, that. they're very yeah. short. And you can order them. There's a company. I don't know that you can. I will give you some advice out there. <laughs> if you're not Ranger qualified, don't order a pair of shorts with the Ranger tab on them. And then go wear those around. I just, I ask you. That. <laughs> I would never do so. If you want to get the Army PT shorts, by all means, go go for it. Don't get ones with the Ranger tab. But you can get generic Ranger panties. There's a company called Sophie, S-O-F-F-E or E-E. It's not, ra- Sophie, it's it's not North rangerpanties.com? They, I don't know that I would go, that on a, <laughs> go to that website. Certainly not on a work computer. Careful if your internet's being monitored. <laughs> Sometimes they're called silkies. Yes. If you know you want a more politically correct term, I guess. Yep. But uh, yeah, they are very comfortable to run in. Very uncomfortable for the people around you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our at least for for Band of Brothers. That's our last bit of military lingo. Yeah. I think there's something that I, that I want to wrap up with here, which is. Obviously, we it's something that we saw through the entire series, and very appropriately in this episode, they bookend a lot of this episode with the relationship between Nixon and Winters. A lot of it revolves around them talking about what they're going to do when they get out, 
Nixon's family owns a manufacturing company in New Jersey and says, hey, you know, why don't you come work there? That's probably where I'm going to end up. We might as well hang out. And uh, which they actually do for, for a period of time after the war. They also reminisce over some pictures, which winners had gotten a hold of uh, going back to some of their, their early times. And so they, you know, go through a couple of the pictures and, you know, these guys were, were young pups and it was just like two years prior, but obviously a heck of an evolution for, for both of them. And so they, they look at him and, and laugh and reminisce uh, about a little bit of that. And I just, I like kind of that story arc. I mean, if there was certainly these guys collectively in, in easy and obviously through a lot of other units had formed their band of brothers, but Nixon and winners specifically were very close. And we saw them together in almost every single episode where they talked not only about the war and army stuff, but just personal things. And that was just a great relationship that it showed. And I like that that's how they finished the episode. And and again, in, in real life, where, you know, winners did take Nixon up on the offer and went worked for his family for a little while. Yeah, I think it is a testament to the power of their relationship. We've talked before about you need look no further than Nixon's alcoholism and winner's treatment and tolerance of mm-hmm. it to, to see how closely bonded they were. Um, but winner's is a guy that could have stayed in the army and, and probably been wearing several stars by the end of his career. He could have done Literally anything. And in fact, talked about that. Yeah. When when he was talking, uh, there was a general that was screening him for his transfer to the 13th, uh, to the 13th Airborne. And, and that general mm-hmm. said, son, if you're looking for combat experience, you, you, you went through Bastogne. You're, you're good. You'll, you'll get your star if you want to hang out. You don't have yeah. to rush into uh, fighting the Japanese. Yeah, exactly. He somehow questions, like, how did you not fire your weapon at Bastogne? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, sir. Let me think. Yeah, that, that was a funny Too busy ducking. Too. But, uh, no, I, I, but he, what does he choose to go do? He chooses to go work for, for Nixon's family yep. and be close to him. I think that just, uh, that encapsulates their entire relationship and what it meant to both of those guys. One, that Nixon would stick his neck out and just outright make the job offer basically or tell him he thinks he could put in a good word for him, I guess (laughs) is what he promised. But you know, that he, he walks away and, and, you know, agrees to to start up life uh, in Jersey, which is not where he's from and uh, all to be with his friend. That's just really incredible. Yeah. And they eventually did split Uh, winners ended up re-enlisting to run a, um, to to run a a training unit uh going into mm-hmm. the Korean War he he did not serve in a combat role and uh they do kind of wrap up the whole episode with this uh, as you mentioned in the um in the summary with winners kind of narrating through a bunch of the key guys who we saw 
throughout the series and talking about what they did and where they went and what they accomplished with it's a very sandlot moment oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> absolutely and 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 particularly with them being on the ball field and such when they when yeah. they kind of did that and um with i i think spears being one of the only ones who actually stayed in the army right yeah uh he ended up running a uh he was like a a, a pow um prison commandant of some sort Mm-hmm. Uh, in in Germany after the war, so <laughs> and then served in Korea. Yes, yeah. So it, it was a nice wrap up, and then they kind of go back to the uh, the talking heads, if you will, of a lot of the guys who they would begin the episodes with, who were actual members of Easy, and now we actually get to know who they were because in the earlier episodes they never gave any indication of who the individuals were. And it's kind of Mm -hmm. funny that like watching each episode, as you hear them talk and you look at their faces and obviously these are the real people versus the actors. Mm -hmm. You're like, well, I think maybe this one is this guy and this one is this guy. Yeah. And then at the end of this one year, you're like, definitely. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that was, he was the easiest one to peg. Yeah. So, yeah, they actually, you know, do throw uh, tags up there on the screen at the end of this. And, and we see who some of these guys are. And, and, and that was kind of nice. And I, I like that they added those in because that just it grounded this even more. Mm-hmm. In reality, I mean, there's a lot of things out there that uh, talk about wars and and. and they sensationalize them and they Hollywoodize them and they take them so far from reality that even if it is based on a true story, sometimes you're just not able to connect enough. And well, they certainly did take a few liberties in this series. They kept it reasonably grounded and even more so by having these soldiers from easy interviewed and and giving little tidbits of their experiences there and just seeing the emotions on their faces through all of this and how much of an impact on their lives um good and bad that this experience had for them so the thing that struck me and it's i think it's put into starker contrast today because it's like every Every aspect of whether it's social media, the internet, you know, news networks that are just persistently covering things, um, it's just a different feel these these days. But these guys did for a fifteen month plus period, two year period, acts that some Americans can never fathom. Yeah, and they walked away from that experience and went back to leading normal lives these guys weren't out on press tours they're not out no looking for twitter followings or or stuff like that and i'm not at all saying that modern service members are different but the i think society's view toward them is different certainly these guys came home and were all heroes 
but they got back to the business of living life and putting the pieces back together. Yeah. They had their families, um, they drove taxis, they worked construction. Yeah, I know. I mean, these are our normal lives. They're not. Uh, they're not out making a buck off their experience. None of these guys are are writing books. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, the, in well, the a couple of years did. after the war. <laughs> That's true. True. But for the but for the large part, these are guys that are going back to normal. In a lot of cases, blue collar lives, yeah. uh, and in a lot of cases, lives where they're serving other folks. Yep. And it's almost like the the tale of. Uh, Cincinnatus from mm-hmm. Rome, where you you get somebody that rises to power, uh, you know, does some great things and and helps restore order, and then goes back to a simple life on yep. the farm. And that's sort of the tale of all of these guys, and certainly collectively the the tale of all of them. And I think that's one of the most, to me, powerful aspects of it. Yeah. Uh, and especially when you and, think and, of not only their experiences, but also some of their responsibilities. I mean, you've got guys who were NCOs, you had guys who, who were lieutenants and, and captains. And, and obviously, you know, talking about uh, Dick Winters uh, of major who mm-hmm. had all this, they had incredible leadership experience. They, the decisions that they would make on the battlefield. I mean, they were, holding the lives of their men in their hands mm-hmm. and not only their men, but also for the enemy as well. And, um, and it certainly is something that we still do see today that we have an awful lot of men and women coming out of the military and entering civilian life who we're still trying to figure out how to make that transition for them and how to engage that experience and that knowledge that they had in something in an organization that is built for war and how to best bring them into civilian life. And there are some skills that translate pretty well, um, like, like your own. There are other skills that may not translate as well. Um, and, and actually, even before this episode, Tom, you know, you and I were, were talking about a little bit about your own experiences in um, transitioning from JAG Corps, which you're, you're still in as, as, a, as a reservist, but kind of transitioning some of that into a civilian practice and having to learn a completely different set of things because you were focused for so many years on UCMJ. Mm-hmm. And not the things that we deal with domestically in terms of of law. Yeah. Well, I think that my experience pales in comparison to what a lot of these guys went through, and and I would say a lot of the the, the vast majority of uh, more modern combat veterans. I say you know infantrymen, folks that were. Uh, combat arms in terms of their job because the things that they their experience is specialized you know even further in in the sense that you had folks coming back in a very different situation than than you see today today if if you were to go on a combat tour and and see you know routine combat through 12 months and, and see some stuff you're coming back to a society that's got 
quite a bit. It's got a long way to go, but quite a bit of infrastructure, support networks. You can talk to folks. It's it's mm-hmm. much more open than it probably was in the 40s. These guys were coming back, and you know, other than the the guys that they're left and they're right that were doing the same thing, there was none no, of that. They were expected to pick um, up where they left off. Yeah, and, and yeah, the thing it, is, it, so many of them didn't have any place where they left off because they truly went out there as kids, and they yeah, were, they had absolutely. to come back and be adults. And they never, they never hit, there was no transition for them. No, no, you muster out and, and that's it. There's not uh, some transition class yeah. or psychological evaluation. It's like, well, thank you for your service. And, and Uncle Sam appreciates it. Yeah. Uh, now on with your life. And I, I just can't imagine having gone through some of those things and struggled with him. And then you, you come back and not only are you having to pick up and, and, step into a stride there but in a lot of cases you either can or don't have anybody to to talk to about it and and share your experience um, and so I, that took time to develop i mean you saw organizations that still exist today whether it's the vfw or american legion there's a reason some of these places mm, exist yeah. beyond fighting for legislative changes and a lot of it has to do with just giving folks an environment where they can uh feel okay to share stuff yeah. um so yeah you see it on the faces of these guys i mean you like just look at how many of the soldiers as they're doing these interviews you know, 40 50 60 years later are tearing up at some of these experiences i mean they were coming home and driving their cab and they're not talking to their fare about what they did in bastone yeah. or whatever that's just something that's a, a chapter that they've turned in their life yeah yeah it's um it's real powerful stuff and and you know even still today despite a lot of the sports systems and organizations that are out there we see a lot of you know real high percentages of uh veteran suicide veteran homelessness that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and and we can certainly do better we should do better um by those guys and gals who have truly put their lives on the line in service to our country and, and, and us as, as individuals. And, and I think that's, um, it's an important thing for us to be supporting. So, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners agree with that since, um, just considering the subject matter of everything that we've been talking about here for the last 10 episodes, uh, really centers on this group of guys who went out there and and fought for us. So, Tom, what are we going to do next? We've 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 done Band of Brothers. It's it's done. It's very bittersweet. It's it's kind of tough to, you know, even watching that last episode. And I've seen it many times, and it's like, wow, this is, it's it's done. I'm not going to see these guys anymore. Yeah, I, Marissa, my wife, pointed out a few days ago as we were getting our schedule together to record this last one that we've been doing this since March. And obviously we've had some gaps in there for various life reasons, but it's been a long time that we've been recording this, even though it's a a 10 episode series. Mm -hmm. And she pointed out in my own life, I've had a baby (laughs) right in the middle of this recording. And that was all the way back at, we were on what, episode five, maybe somewhere on there, six, somewhere in there. And so we've been, it's been a really fun ride. I've really enjoyed it separate from recording and talking about all this with you guys and uh, you, especially Tim, 
getting to experience this with her, and we've exposed our baby to violent images of war <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> I have a, I have a couple pages. Please the last no episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Evelyn sits there and she's got. She can sit up. You can hold her and she'll just look around. But she enjoy staring at large TV screens. <laughs> and so I have a couple pictures of her just staring at the last episode, just like mouth open. Like, and I went to Marissa. I was like, man, I'm, I'm kind of glad that there's not too much combat in this yeah. one, like explosions. <laughs> like the, the Bastone episode, I'm covering up her ears as all the artillery is going off. So no, it's been a, it's been a really great ride. And I think we're going to go back to Normandy to D-Day. <laughs> and we're, we, we've kicked around the, the idea of doing a continuation of the podcast, but instead of focusing on a TV show for now, we're going to go into war movies. And what better way to start than Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, like we mentioned very early on covering this series, Saving Private Ryan was uh, the inspiration for doing Band of Brothers. Uh, as we saw Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg working together on Saving Private Ryan, and then they saw this incredible story of of men that uh, was put together by Stephen Ambrose, and they said, "Hey, why don't we, you know, do something around that?" So it's uh, it's very fitting that that's what we're going to do first. And I don't know, Tom and I have been comparing notes for a while. We we both have some pretty good libraries of uh, war movies, good good war movies, quality war movies. And, and a lot of those libraries overlap. And we're going to cover some different periods of time. We'll spend some time with World War II. We'll spend some time with some more contemporary uh, movies. I mean, both of us, I know, are huge, huge fans of Black Hawk Down, which is one of the most perfect movies ever created. Uh, in my eyes, I mean, it's just the cast is incredible. The story is outstanding. It just everything about that movie is great. They just had yesterday the annual Mogadishu run, which happens every year down in Columbus, Georgia, which is the town that sits right right outside Fort mm-hmm. Benning, which is the the one of the homes or the the home of the 75th Ranger Regiment, one of their battalions at least. So they had some low flying Blackhawks and whatnot. I'm already like starting that episode. Nice. <laughs> I'm so excited to watch that movie again. Yeah, they don't do the Mogadishu run in Mogadishu because it's still a shithole. A little tough, you know. The 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 authority, the local authorities there, are a little difficult to get uh, permits for your 5K yeah. route. Oh, there's local authorities <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, you know. Pirate um, authorities. And and and, and, and <laughs> hey, I'm not meaning to insult anyone who may be from Mogadishu. But yeah, obviously it has continued to be basically a war zone and and not governed and a lot of warlords and pirates and all sorts of other stuff um, as it's just still continues to be a horrible area. So, but yeah, we're, um, but for, first we are going to talk about Saving Private Ryan. So probably sometime in the next two or three weeks, we will be back to you to talk about that. Which, boy, that's just uh, that movie. And it's a great movie, but sometimes just those first 20 minutes are worth watching. I mean, they are just insanely intense yeah. as they're making landfall on the beach and trying to get up the um, trying to get up the escarpment to the German position. It's just like mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. 
So, with that said, uh, we're going to wrap up this episode of Dispatches from the Front, our final episode talking about Band of Brothers. Certainly, if you have any feedback, uh, please, there's a number of ways you can get a hold of us. You can send us an email, which will reach both Tom and I. Send that to dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can find us online, as always. And I really encourage this. I'm taking a step off the script, but I really enjoy hearing from folks that listen. This isn't a, a plea for a pat on the back or whatever, but I I found Tim through a shared love of Star Wars and the military aspect of this. The, the folks that I'm closest with today are often folks that I, I have randomly interacted with and then built a friendship with over time. And so I really do encourage you, and I think I can speak for Tim yep. as well in this and, and the other hosts, in saying it, it, reach out to us. On Twitter, you can find uh, the, the main station, at Random Chatter. Tim, where can they find you? Uh, at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. And you can reach out to me at Thomas L. L is in Larry Harper. And I mean that. So if, if you want to talk, if you want to just gush about Band of Brothers or, or have some ideas and want to talk about a, a war movie that you might want to hear covered or something like that, or if you just want to rap about stuff that we've talked about or nerd yeah. out, then, then by all means, find us. And you can find all of our shows on randomchatter.com. We certainly appreciate folks spreading the word and supporting us. Uh, word of mouth is really the best way that podcasts get the word out there and, and kind of gain some listenership. So if you've enjoyed what we have done here, as we have uh, in the past, please let your friends, family members, coworkers know who share some of these interests. Leave us some reviews, wherever it is that you find the podcast. Uh, we actually, I, I discovered we did have a review on iTunes. So thank you very much for the person who left that. Um, you can do so also on Google Play and, and any other venues where you might find us. Um, those reviews do help. I mean, you, you click on the stars, write in a, a couple of sentences about why you like us. And it, that doesn't, I mean, like we don't get anything from that, but that does help other folks as they're searching for something. If they're looking for a podcast for Band of Brothers or a World War II oriented podcast, that elevates us in the search results and helps other people enjoy us as well. And the great thing about our podcast is that it's not a it's not a timely podcast. It's not like we're talking about current events or something like that, that the value of our episodes expires. So if someone comes around to listening to this two or three years from now, it's still relevant because we're talking about TV shows and movies. So um, things that you can still find. And you're talking about that word of mouth, the folks that I've talked to, to shamelessly plug the podcast, it'll be just natural conversations about, uh, you know, either oh, we talk about World War II or, uh, you know, Band of Brothers. I've been blown away how many people I have met since we've been doing this podcast that have never seen the Band oh, of Brothers. Yeah. And I, I tell them, I'm like, you can think whatever you want to think, listen or not listen to the podcast, but the show is absolutely worth watching and what i tell people is this is it's a great opportunity you could try out the podcast more importantly you can fill a hole in your life <laughs> by watching this show and not be one of those folks that uh that has to be embarrassed and say like what is band that's of right that's right uh you can all we certainly do appreciate some financial contributions if if uh you're interested and able to do so we are part of a network random chatter which has like 15 different regular podcasts 
Um, and associated with doing anything like that, we do have costs. Um, while none of us get paid for what we do, it's a, it's a labor of love. There are costs associated with putting podcasts out there on the technical end of things. We have data storage fees and we have web hosting fees and things associated with our technology and recording and distribution and all that kind of stuff. Um, things that, that would otherwise be coming out of our pockets. So if you're interested and able to throw something at us, it could be a one-time donation. It could be a monthly thing. Even just a dollar a month is a huge help. You can do so by going to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. And uh, that walks you through the whole process there. Uh, even just that dollar a month will get you full access uh, to our Discord community. And Discord is basically this collection of online chat rooms. And we talk about all sorts of things in these chat rooms. Uh, our hosts and a lot of other listeners are in there. We do have kind of a, a kind of a, an open public area as well, where you don't have to be a Patreon contributor. You can go to randomchatter.com slash discord, and that will get you access to our public lobby and our show discussion areas, which also includes uh, dispatches from the front in there. Tom, one last time. I know. Because you're not going to have to this do is... this again. I know. It's <laughs> it's really tough. I've done it in different voices <laughs> through the last 10 episodes, but I guess this time I'll have to... This will be me fighting back tears <laughs> as I do this disclaimer for the last time. But, as you may know, Dispatches from the Front is not endorsed by HBO. Damn, Still, I don't know how at the, the 10th episode, and HBO hasn't contacted us. But, it is for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the Band of Brothers series are registered trademarks and or copyrights of HBO or their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with HBO, somehow still, <laughs> and all original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. Oh, wow. That was, Tom, that almost brought a I tear know, to my eyes. Almost. I know. Mo mostly out of boredom. <laughs> I kind of spaced out and, you know, checked my text messages. <laughs> Well, folks, that's it. Thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll be back to you in a few weeks talking about Save it Pri Saving Private Ryan. Go Redbox it if you don't own it. And if you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan, you were in for a ride. Oh, hell yes. So we'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>